And whether those values and principles include your own your own body, your own physical health, your own, you know, what you eat, what you drink, who you see, who you kiss, who you touch. And all of a sudden some asswipe is compelling you to stick a needle in your body and put something into it that you know you do not want. But this twerp has the power of taking away from you your friggin' job, which is your money, your food, your car, your home, your kid's college. I, I mean, to me, that is like one of the worst things in the world because why and how should that person have that power? On the street as a police officer, back when I was a cop without tasers and without body cams, uh, if a guy told you he was not getting in that police car, you had to figure out a way to get him in the police car. And if he got away from you, he was a better man than you. And if he didn't get away from you, you're a better man than he was. And yet, fast forward to where we are today with some dweeb telling you, say, take special forces guys, take firefighters, take 911 responders, people who saved this country 22, two and a half, three years ago when everyone was scared of COVID. Firing, having the, having the power to fire these people, to get rid of them, and, or to force them to eat shit when they were very proud people, very strong-willed people, very brave people, people who wanted to serve their community. There's something unbelievably wrong with that. And what is wrong with that is there are too many people walking this friggin' planet right now, walking our country right now, our state, our city, our town, that don't have any balls and are too afraid to stand up to these people. These people are only as good as you're willing to bend over for them for. They, have no, they can't do anything to you. They're nothing. But we give them power through the bureaucracies that we created. And, um, you know, in my opinion, nothing's ever going to change until people have courage. And every once in a while you'll see on TV or, you know, highlighted on radio or, you know, uh, some of these uh, kind of pretty uh, great, you know, talk shows where they get very interesting guests who are, products of having been fired for standing up for their principles, whether it be a football coach who wants to pray on the field, whether it be a firefighter who's a lieutenant who doesn't want to get a jab, you know, I mean, these are the, these are the kind of people that we should, we should spend more time emulating and having our kids understand that this is, this is what it's all about to stand up for what you believe in. And there's not enough of that right now. It's, there's just too much of follow the friggin' bullshit around and bend over for these people. And really, this has got to stop, but we're, we're like totally gone. We're, we're ruined. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you bring up that the politics were back in the policing in the 1970s. Of course, there's politics involved with everything going back to the history of mankind. Everything is always perverted by politics. But I wanted to ask you, because I remember when I was a kid, I think it was in the 1990s in New Haven, Connecticut. And this was a major transformation of at least the illusion of the old style policing to what it, policing pretty much around the country is today when uh what was that guy's name um that came in under john De, mayor john de stefano the italian guy who came in and then he got rid of all the police horses and the police dogs uh oh. nick pastor wasn't yeah. that his name 
Right. So Nick Pastor was one of the, he was in charge of the detective division when I was being fired. So a couple of times they tried to double team me and put the chief of police, Eddie Marone, and Nick Pastor in the, in the closed chief's office with me. So it's always two on one. See, back in the old days before tape recorders and this and that, they get you two on one or three on one in an interrogation room or this or that or whatever, they're cops. They're going to freaking lie. Yeah, the guy said that he, uh, you know, that he used the rubber gloves. And the, the guy never said anything. He doesn't even know what rubber gloves are. But then, now they can't get away with it when I had the tape recorder. Well, Nick Pastor was one of those characters who was part of that whole process of political policing Oh, who have power when you're in charge of the detective division in the city of New Haven you can pretty much do almost anything um, but Pastor got himself into a whole bunch of trouble because believe it or not here's an Italian guy with a brother who's also on the job the brother was um, Lenny he was pretty pretty good guy and Nick ends up inseminating a black prostitute i'm talking about having sex with a street walking prostitute and has a child with her buys her shoes and clothes and this and that and this and that and then ends up now mind you now he's the head of the de de detective division who is then put in i believe he was a temporary chief of police for a while doing this and having put his name on the birth certificate. Put his name on the birth certificate as the father of the baby. Somebody did some research and found out about it. And one morning in the New Haven newspaper, front page of the New Haven newspaper, on one side of the, uh, of the front page, top, is a picture of Nick Pastor. And on the right side is a picture of the black prostitute and the whole story in the middle about how the chief inseminated and fathered uh, a black child. And that was like the end of his friggin' career. I understand his wife, you know, all kinds of stories of what happened. A close-knit Italian neighborhood, that, you know, Italian generation, but, this stuff does not happen. This guy, it was like the downfall of... The type of thing that you would like to see to happen to every creep who abuses their power and whatever, wherever they work, doesn't have to be a cop or a fireman or whatever, but it was almost like, wow, there is justice in this world, man. You know, you, I mean, how stupid to even have sex with a street walking prostitute <laughs> and then having a baby and then putting your name on a birth certificate. But this, and you're the chief of friggin' police and the head of the detective division. Now, how friggin' stupid could that be? Right, but his being outed came after he was chief uh, and totally dismantled yeah. the police department. Because I remember, I don't want to mention certain people's names, but when I was a he kid, all, there were certain friends of yours that were in charge that he pushed out. Like Lenny, uh, yeah. He, what, <laughs> well, yeah. Here's what he did. He, he sent he, one guy to the dog pound. Here's what he did. When he came in... As a pawn of the Yale, of the Yale Democratic, at that time it would be called progressive too, I guess, a social engineering operation, he demoted 
the five or six guys who were commanders at the time. A commander was a position that was the second, actually the third highest in the New Haven Police Department. Above them were majors. There would be four, three or four majors. One of them was like one of my best friends. Two or three of the commanders were my best friends. But he came in and he dismantled all of them. They tried to give these guys a golden handshake to hit the road because these were people who were promoted years earlier that were not necessarily in line with the new administration. This is politics again, the way it works. So they gave every single one of them that would agree to retire from the police department uh, an additional sum of money, which we called like the golden handshake, and they would leave. One of my buddies, who happened to be my sergeant when I first started working in the Hill, he said, no, I ain't leaving. And uh, Pastor said, no, no, you got to leave. Everybody's leaving. All you guys are leaving. You're retiring now and this and that. Lenny, the commander, said, nah, I ain't leaving. He's Italian also, Lenny, as stubborn as was Pastor. So a short time thereafter, like within a matter of days, Lenny gets a memo in his mailbox from the chief that, that he's reassigned. So Lenny was the commander at that time. Uh, What was Lenny in charge of? I don't know if he was in charge of patrol, which would have been like 250 guys, uh, or another larger portion of the police department. He is now sent to the dog pound, animal shelter. He's, He's now a commander in charge of the New Haven animal shelter with three civilian employees picking up dogs, euthanizing them and cleaning dog cages i said oh my god my buddy my buddy my buddy lenny he's definitely gonna leave nope no way so i used to go down and visit him all the time at the the animal shelter i said lenny lenny like you're commander and you're down there he says i don't give a shit i love dogs he says i got he's having a lot of fun i said pastor must be like really really pissed about you're not leaving. He goes, I don't care. I don't care. After about six months of Lenny down there, all of a sudden this article comes out in the newspaper <coughs> with the picture of the prostitute and the chief and a copy on second page of the birth certificate, a photocopy of the birth certificate listing the mother and the father. I said to myself, I know this is Lenny. I know this is Lenny. I know this was payback. <coughs> He never admitted it. Oh, never yeah. admitted it. The problem with Pastor is he had like 400 enemies. So it could have been anyone. But I always wished and hoped that it was Lenny because what greater way of getting even with somebody and then exposing them for the truth, yeah. to the truth of something, not setting them up, exposing them for the truth. Well, let me, let me ask you this. Back when you were a cop and then those guys that you said you learned um, about the job from, <laughs> sort of the post-World War II yeah. era guys, did people that were police in New Haven back then generally live in New Haven? Because one of the things I wonder is if you live <laughs> in the city, at least back then, when you're out working, you're basically 
being hired by the citizens of the city to then to protect, protect yourself. your own city, your where you live, versus what I would see in Tennessee or what I see here in Frederick County, Maryland. Sometimes, is there will be a Frederick County, Maryland police car parked in a in, in a driveway an hour from here, or in Tennessee, I would see cop cars in different counties that went with the other counties. And when it, when you're doing that, it's almost like you're going into the just another jungle, like you're going off to Vietnam to fight. You're not really protecting your own community do you think a lot of that has sort well, of changed the way policing work over the years here here's the deal um when i first got on there i'm trying to think whether there was or was not a residency requirement remember prior to the big affirmative action <clears throat> move and all the politics surrounding it and a lot of the racial inequities that existed in inner cities where blacks oftentimes were abused or ignored or mistreated, not just by police, but by tax, by the tax people, by the government, by anything, you know, it was like, it was, it, it was, it was just the way things were back then. One of the reasons to initiate residency requirements in certain urban areas wasn't necessarily for the reason you just said, which makes sense, because yes, you're going to protect vehemently your neighborhood and your town, okay? No, it was to get more blacks on the job. Mm -hmm. It was to limit the number of applicants who, who were qualified by eliminating all of the people who lived in a, an abutting suburb. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what happened starting with my class, which we had college-educated kids, New Haven is surrounded by about six colleges, University of New Haven, Yale, Southern, Quinnipiac. We had a number of people who made the police department in my 35 or so person class that weren't even from friggin' Connecticut but had lived in and around New Haven while they were going to college and became interested in being a cop. So now all of a sudden with my class in 1974, we started actually bringing in people into New Haven that weren't even born or lived here or whatever. Prior to that, a majority of the, those old that older group of guys that I was referring to were New Haven guys. They knew the city inside out. They knew people. They knew businesses. I mean, there's good and bad to that, but I find it mostly good. The old timers would tell me stories. Um, and when you first get on the job, after you go through all your training and everything, you, you ride for like, uh, I don't know if it was three weeks or whatever, but you ride with several different officers. Okay. And during that time when you're riding in a patrol car with him and, and kind of learning uh, the street, uh, there you're learning a lot of stories, and then you drink with these guys all the time, so there's a lot of camaraderie. But this is the way it was back then. A lot of walking beats, and basically, if you got assigned to a walking beat, say, on Legion Avenue, well, Legion Avenue had a lot of bakeries and butcher shops back at those times. Well, the bakers and the butchers would try to befriend the cops and give them keys to their businesses, to their shops, and invite the cop to sleep in the shop overnight. Because when you had, when there were midnight walking beats, 
when Clap is not walking all night long, man. You always find in a place to hide. You find a hole, a hole, a place to hide. So these guys, because there were no sophisticated burglar alarms and this and that or whatever, they would give the cops keys and try to get the cops to stay in the house. You want to get warm? It is. You come in. You make yourself a sandwich. You know. You know. So at the end of those shifts in the morning, what the older guys would tell us is that you would go. You drove by the police department in New Haven. You would see these guys at 6.30 or 7 o'clock in the morning. The cops had worked all night long with their trunks open. And they would load it, be loading with their trucks, with their trunks of their cars with a chicken, with uh, six loaves of Italian bread, uh, you know, whatever. they. And they were given these things. They were like, the shopkeepers wanted it that way. And the cops took it. All the diners and everywhere we ate was free. <clears throat> when I first came on the job, the movie Serpico had just come out about two years before. It was part of it was part of what made me really want to become a cop. That that and a situation when I was 16 years old and our family got uh, we got robbed at gunpoint. There was a shootout. It was a home invasion. That's a whole other story, but. Uh, the Serpico movie got you thinking about, you know, graft and, uh, you know, taking money and this and that. So when I first got on the job and I started riding with other cops and I was a reserve officer before and we'd go in a diner and we would eat and the cop would get up to leave and I'd say, what about pay? And he goes, oh, you don't pay here. And that, I started thinking of the movie Serpico and I said, you don't pay here. He goes, no, the diners, they want us here. They, they want us here. They, they, if we could sit here all day long, they would give us steak sandwiches all day long. They would give us eggs and this and that. They want the uniform here. They don't want anybody coming in with a shotgun and robbing the cash register. They want the cop here. They want the police car up front. I said, oh, wow, oh, wow. That's like, that's like, like really, really cool. So, so it was like a give and take between the community and the shopkeepers the owners of businesses and the police officers. It wasn't really necessarily graft. I, now there was there was probably sh a lot of shit going on at the upper levels, like we had after hours clubs and this and that. There were payoffs. New Haven was bifurcated. It had two portions of organized crime because it was on the border between the Patriarca family in Rhode Island and the Gambino or Colombo family in New York. New Haven was kind of half and half. So certain things, numbers and gambling and, and uh, after hours clubs and stuff like that were run by two different uh, organized crime operations located many miles apart between Providence, Rhode Island and New York City. I didn't get involved in a lot of that, but you saw it occur because I was taken on raids. We were taken on raids or after hours clubs we would all get in a van and Nick Pastor, of all people, <laughs> that lineup at midnight, you walk in, you're midnight, you're at lineup, you, you get in your stolen car reports, this and that, there's 20 of you, all of a sudden they tell you, guys, well, we're doing something tonight, we can't tell you what it is, but uh, go down the elevator, Bob, go to the Sally Port, there's two vans, get in the vans. In the van, so you, you know, you, you're with your buddies, you get in the van, you don't know where you're going, you get in the friggin' van, Stores close, off they go. You get there, bango, you're at an after hours club. 
Then the B of I, Bureau of Identification, with all their cameras are there. You walk in, you raid the club, you take everything. A big box truck comes. The guys from our maintenance department and the police department, they come, they start loading the bar and the furniture. And and there's our camera, of, uh, um, our Bureau of Identification guys taking photographs of everything. So there you are, you're being used as a pawn to raid an after-hours club and directly across the street, as you raided this club, arrested people, threw people out and took all the possessions of the club, the speakers, system, the whole thing, and this and that. There's music blaring and blaring and blaring across the street and all these people walking in and out of an after-hours club right across the street, like right there, like right in front of you. It's like, wait a minute, what's going on over here? Ah, uh, they paid the money. They paid, they could stay. They paid, they stay. Well, who's running this? Well, this was a pastor operation. This was a pastor operation. So we're closed to one that isn't paying, and this and that. Now, I, I, you know, like, you see all that. You're young. You're like, you're like 25 years old, you know, and you're seeing it all. It's a city in which you spend a lot of your time. Uh, I, when I was young, I grew up in New Haven for like six years. Then we moved to a contiguous town. But, I mean, New Haven was where I went, YMCA, played basketball, football, the whole thing, all in New Haven. So New Haven was where I grew up. But you don't know what's going on under the under the cover, so to speak, until you, you, know, you become a cop and you see all this stuff. But... Um, in answer to your question, the, what happened with the um, residency thing is after a while they started realizing that sometimes you would be better off by expanding your recruiting geography, mm. which would make natural sense because then you would have a better shot at getting better people. So it's almost like affirmative action uh, situation. If you do that and you limit it, oh, everybody's got to have a certain skin color. But if you do it by uh, merit and you open the door, then you're getting the best of the best. Well, because politics was involved, they didn't necessarily want the best of the best. But here's what happened. Oftentimes, the people who had the political connections or their kids did to a particular board of commissioner, a police commission uh person or the mayor or whatever happened to live outside the city at a town or two away. So now with all the political pressure there was, how am I going to get my son on the police department in New Haven if we live one town away, not in that town? So they changed the ordinance initially and they said contiguous towns. So then they moved it a whole bigger circle. Then they made another bigger circle, and then they finally got rid of it. Right, so it goes from contiguous towns to county to state. Right, it was all a game based on politics of who for who. So in the beginning, when it was all residency, that was was because the black, because in order for the Democratic mayor at that time to get elected, he had to make certain promises to the black population of New Haven. And one of the many promises that he would have to make them is this residency thing. And why? So we get more black cops. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's interesting because I listened to a conversation when I lived in Nashville. It was a local radio host named Dan Mandis. And he was interviewing a gentleman out of Georgia who had been a recruiter for like 40 years. He was retired recruiter of one of the biggest 
police departments in the country. He wouldn't say where exactly. It was an hour-long interview. It was really good. And he was talking about how he used to be able to recruit like the best of the best, like you'd get the starting quarterback on the high school football team and you'd be able to recruit him and get him to be a cop. And then that guy was looked at like a hero and he would do community outreach and people really trust the police. And he was saying, and now you just end up basically with the dregs of society. People who have failed at all other things in life then become the cop. So you literally have the guy who was a criminal yesterday is now the cop because you can't get good people to want to be cops. Number one, he said, with the pay not really going up over the years, you're not going to get someone for a base salary of $39,000 who's going to risk going out there getting shot, getting bricks thrown at him, or getting in a situation where he, you talked about uh, proactive policing. They don't even do reactive policing. If you get a call now, and, I, and I've talked to cops personally and friends of mine who have cousins that are cops, they said if they get a call at midnight on domestic violence, they don't even pick up their radio anymore. They won't go there because, God forbid, they have to wrestle some guy to the ground and it gets on video. Yeah. They know that the politicians yeah. aren't going to have their back and the next thing you know, they're going to get fired and or have their house burned down and it's going to be live on all the mainstream here, media networks. Here, here, here's the way I look at it. 